Malachi 2, verse 17. The messenger of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Here is the reading. I'm on. Am I on? Would you like me to be louder? No. Good morning and welcome as um, we're well into the service this morning. And uh, it's my privilege. For those of you that don't know me, um, my name's Andrew. Um, it's my privilege to pastor here and um, to lead you in the service this morning. And I just was thinking, I was sitting here thinking, how different is this week from last week? Who was here last week for the kids? Who enjoyed the kids' service? I always reckon they're fantastic. I love seeing our kids do the whole thing and they did an amazing job. And Scott, you did, uh, Scott's not here, but he did an amazing job leading them as well. Um, and I think it's um, one of the things that I get excited about when I see it is just the way the kids are excited. You know, um, how many of you... Woke up this morning and thought, yippee, church. All right, let me ask it differently. <laughs> you know, but when the kids get up, they're excited about it. They're excited to serve. They're really keen to serve. And they're really keen to be a part of what's going on in the life of the church, our family. And I think that's a really good testimony to each one of us. Are you with me? That's really good. We have, um, we're doing this mini, 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 mini series leading up to Christmas called Waiting and I did the, the first one of that a couple of weeks ago and, and today we're, um, we're looking at the second one um, and we're just talking about waiting for the Messiah. We're looking at how um, we as God's people and how God's people waited for the Messiah to come and we're looking at different aspects of waiting and last time I talked about waiting for a king. And this promise of a king and this, this sense that, that the people were, were keen and eager for this king to come. 
Um, and they'd heard the stories for many years, and um, they knew that a Messiah was coming. And the stories, the oral stories, went down the ages, and this king would be the king to end all kings. This week, we're talking about waiting in silence. And we're going to speak today, we're going to talk about something that we, we don't talk about often in church. Well, I'm going to preach on the stuff that's between the Testaments. So we don't often talk about this, 400, we call it 400 years, there's 400 and something odd years in between Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, the last word from God through the prophet Malachi, and there were other prophets around as well, to Matthew, which we celebrate in a couple of weeks, to the birth of Jesus. And that was a long wait. What's the longest you have ever waited for something you really wanted or were hanging out for? Can you think? You ever waited for something really long, like a promise of something coming? And you know, you mothers might be able to identify when the kid promises to clean their room. How long have you waited for that? You know. Um, but have you ever? If if you're a kid, it might be overnight is the longest wait ever for your birthday or for Christmas. If you're an adult, it might be a week, it might be a month. It might be a year or many years waiting for something. Can you think of something that you, in your life that you really waited for, that you waited patiently or not so patiently for? Have you ever waited for something so long that you actually gave up? That you thought you've lost hope, you've lost interest in waiting for it, or you've got distracted and diverted you know, you waited years for something or, or, or something that was coming, but you've got distracted, I diverted, and you've lost hope, you've lost interest. That kind of thing happens when you can't imagine it anymore, when you can't imagine that thing that you're waiting for. And it seems like it's never going to happen. It might be finishing uni, it might be finally paying off that house, or it might be finally getting a house, or it might be, you know, that elusive partner in life that you've been looking for for a long time, and you kind of lose hope. Like it's never going to happen. could be waiting for a pay rise that you desperately need or that holiday you've dreamt of for years that you were promised one day. Or waiting for that one thing you've always wanted, that promised gift. They said it was coming, but you're not hearing anything. And sometimes you get impatient. And instead of waiting, you do or you get something else. You get distracted by a lesser goal. What I mean by that, instead of waiting for the thing that, that, you, that, the thing that you're expecting or the thing that you're going for or the thing that was promised, you decide, I can't wait for that. I'll go this way. How about waiting for 400 odd years and not hearing anything? That's waiting on steroids, isn't it? It's a long time to get for the chance to get distracted. It's a long time to forget. What was the promise again? What, what was it? That's a long time to give you to try to fill it out and do it yourself and, and so much more. And in that time, it's going to take some really good memory about remembering what, what, what was coming and some really good targeted reminders and stories and a bunch of patience. And I guess like most humans... God's people might have struggled a bit with that. And you go to our reading. This is the last, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. The last word from God 
It's around the time also of Nehemiah and Ezra. You might remember those two books where Ezra came before Nehemiah. Nehemiah rebuilt and talked to King Artaxerxes or something like that. And, and they rebuilt the, um, and he got to rebuild the walls and, and the temple. And the people were kind of in this place, the people were kind of free. They were being allowed, this, this King Artaxerxes, whatever his name was, he kind of let them be a little bit free and, and have their own nation. He had some passion for them. They were free to work. They were free to live, to make money, to marry, to worship their God uh, in their temple. And so the people aren't their own nation, but they're kind of free to do their own thing. But the people are getting, God's people are getting way too comfortable, too much. They're forgetting who they are. And in Malachi, that's where we get, if you read all of Malachi, you get to see how God sort of feels about them forgetting who they are. Because God's people are different and are supposed to be different. They're supposed to be different than the culture that they live in. Different in who they worship and how they live. But they're getting distracted. In Malachi... Um, if you read the whole thing, the, the struggles are they're intermarrying. They were not meant to. They're intermarrying with, with other nations. There is a growing, even amongst God's people, just in their own enclaves, there's a growing, an alarming growth in social injustice, in people being oppressed. Adultery and divorce were rampant among God's people. Worship had degenerated. Um, there were bad sacrifices. People, instead of bringing, you know how the pe- God's people were supposed to bring the best or the, the best lamb? They were bringing the lame ones. They were bringing the ones that weren't so good or had a blemish or, you know, had one eye shut or one ear down or whatever. And the priests, they could be bought off. If you brought a lame, uh, a lame go- goat or lamb, you could pay the priest off and he would let you sacrifice that lamb. And this is all the stuff that's happening in Malachi. The priests were corrupt. People were refusing to pay tithes. So in Malachi, we're a thousand odd years since Abraham, and this is where we got. This is where we're at with God's people. And in Malachi, you see this back and forth between God and his people. There's, there's the people accusing God that he's not blessing them enough and, and he's not doing his job. And then he accuses them of all the things we just mentioned. And, and it's this backwards and forwards dispute and it seems like, where are we going? Where's God, where, where are God's people at? What's happening with God's people? But then in our verses, God tells them that his messenger is coming. The messenger of, in, in, one, in verse 1b, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Then the things that are, are so wrong and, and, and the things that, that aren't right will come to light and they'll be judged in verses. If you go on in, in verses three, 2 and 3 and, and 5, we see how God talks about that. And then we didn't read this, but if you flip over to chapter 4, and let me just read a couple of verses for you here, you read of what's coming right at the end. Verse chapter 4 is the last chapter of Malachi. So the last thing, this is God's promise. But for you who fear my name, The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This was the promise. If you stick with me, those of you that fear my name, 
a day is coming. A day is coming when you will be the victors. And so after chapter 4, we fall into that 400-odd years of silence, don't we? No words. Now, it might be silent, but God is certainly not inactive. There will be quite some refining that happens to God's people, and there will be some big, big changes. And um, waiting would require resilience. Waiting to hear from God, waiting for that promise that came in the end of Malachi and in some of the other prophecies would require resilience. It would require a steadfast faith. It would require an inner peace, particularly because there would not be a lot of peace on the outside around them. It would, they would need to have an inner peace. So what happened in those 400 years? We know actually quite a lot from respected writers. Josephus is one of the writers. Um, some of the apocryphal books that you may have heard of apocryphal books um, that didn't make it into the Bible. They are, there are some, um, some, credible re- some credible works in there. Respected history documents, even the Dead Sea Scrolls, you would have heard of those, give us a good insight into that time as well. And as I began... Um, And as I said last time, so God's people weren't their own nation. They were, at the time of this, they were ruled by Persia. King, king, that king, he was the king of Persia. Um, And they were just ruled, Persia was the ruling, uh, was kind of like the the ruling nation. And they could exist under Persia kind of as, as their own nation and do their own thing. But just a few years later, there was a guy called, anyone heard of Alexander the Great? He was a Greek. So he probably ate really good food. I always think of that when I think of Greece. I love that. Alexander the Great. He was from Greece and he came and conquered Persia. And in conquering Persia, of course, he got God's people. He got Palestine. He got the people of Judah. And you might have read this before. The Greek goal was to dominate. The, the way the Greek nation got, um, dominate, uh, ruled was to take over and dominate by the total overthrow of a culture. So they would totally overthrow the culture and they would totally change language, culture, practices and everything where they went. And quite frankly, the Greek way was considered a way more refined way of living, a way more cultured way of living. Well, Alexander the Great dies. He <laughs> There's some fantastic reading. I can't tell you the whole stories, but if you ever read what happens, it's just amazing. Alexander the Great dies because he drinks himself to death, celebrating that he's so good. And his four generals, his four main generals, split the world up between them. And this guy, Ptolemy, gets Palestine. And he is very, very Greek. And so the Greek influence became super strong in Palestine. God's people, the people of Judah, became totally Greek. It was considered more refined, more cultured, more trendy to be Greek. Now, the way we see that's often, you'll see that the language that Paul writes in is Greek because he comes from there. The cultural practices, the thinking, the reasoning, the ethics and the values were all hugely influenced by Greece. And so, if, you know, less than 100 years into this 400 years, the nation is now no longer under Persia. They don't even have real strong Jewish influence. They now have Greek influence. However, two groups emerge um, within that. Two major groups, lots of splinter groups, but two major groups. And you'll know these guys in a minute. 
The first group are the Hellenists who wanted Greek culture and thought to be in. They wanted to liberate some of those, you know, those boring Jewish laws that, that we read about right through the Old Testament. Um, and then the other group was the Hebrew nationalists, obviously the other side of the fence. They wanted to preserve everything in the Mosaic order. They resisted any new forces. They resisted the Greek thinking. They wanted to preserve tradition. You'll recognize the names of these two groups because the group that wanted to preserve everything, they were called the Pharisees. And the group that wanted all the modern thinking were called the Sadducees. We know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One preserving tradition and in fact getting ever stricter. The Pharisees just got stricter and stricter. You know, you know what it's like when you're trying to hang on to something? You actually actually get even more. Um, there's a Dutch word I can't think of this string. But you even get more tight about that anyway and, and, and legalistic and, and rigid. And they added things to the point that, as we know, they got to the point where there were 600 and something odd ways to live to preserve Jewish practices and culture. The other, more liberal and political, they were more political. They were rationalists, the Sadducees. They were not keen at all on supernatural stuff or the stuff the Pharisees believed in. And you might recognize them. There was a time when Jesus was questioned on who gets the wife in heaven after seven husbands died. Do you remember that? That was the Sadducees trying to mock this whole supernatural idea of the resurrection, that it wasn't true. So there's those two groups that you know. So they emerged in the middle of the Greek time. Around this time also, you'll, get, you'll understand why I'm sharing. This. I'm, sure I'm going across this big time. There's some great detail here. Around this time, there were 70 scholars got together and they translated the Old Testament into Greek. First time anything was translated into another language. The Old Testament was translated into another language. Some of you that have read around this would know those, um, that the Old Testament that was translated into Greek was called the Septuagint. Sept being seven was the 70 guys that translated. That's where that word comes from. A king skipping, a king named Antiochus then invaded and he captured Palestine. He deposed the temple priests. The priests at this time were still in the line of Aaron. They could still be traced back to Aaron, who was Moses' brother. But he deposed the priests. He sold the priesthood to another guy who was not priestly at all. And this guy defiled the temple, ridiculed the Jewish practices by sacrificing a pig on the Holy of Holies altar. Um, this was one bad dude. And then lots of wars started happening. This is all happening in those years. They were not silent years except from God. Then after a number of successions and wars, Rome was standing back and watching the world fight itself. Rome was becoming a ruling power and they were standing back watching the world, watching with interest from the sidelines. And finally they got drawn into one battle in Jerusalem. They were called in, they used their might, they overthrew the city and they captured it for Rome. This was 63 BC and from that time on, Jerusalem was under the power and authority of Rome. That's when we hear of all these Herods that came. And so in those 400 years, you see a massive change in who rules, what culture actually exists, what culture drives society, and whether we're, good, whether we're under good or under oppressive rule. And we know that Rome was not good rule. So we come to the time of Jesus. We come to the end of those 400 years, and Rome is now the governing body. 
all through this time. Even though the nation was tiny, the nation of Judah, Palestine, was tidy, a tiny in the ruling empire's portfolio of empires because Rome had a lot. They had a huge portfolio of people. They just, When they felt like it, they would just go in and take a nation because they could. So there were nations that weren't ruled by Rome. They just hadn't chosen to do that, but they could. That was the power of Rome. Although Palestine was tiny in the ruling empire's portfolio of empires, God's people hung on to the words that God had spoken back in Malachi. Promises like this in Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This was the stories they were hearing. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. If you have a look at that, there were so many promises in there. When you're under an oppressive rule of Rome, you've been through so many different cultures, this now is what you hang on to. You might be a small nation, You might be insignificant in the picture of what the world looks like. But somewhere back then, God promised that from us would come someone that would save us from all this. And that's what they were hanging on to. That was what created this yearning and this desire that freedom was coming. Waiting for saving to be saved again. And do you remember this is echoes of God's people from Egypt who will save us? Remember, some th- hundreds of years before, they were saved from oppression before. These years changed God's people, but also had challenges for them, didn't it? Because in waiting in silence, there's lots of challenges. You can forget. You know, they forgot. They began to intermarry. They began to oppress. They, they forgot. What God was doing, they got distracted. It led to distraction. They, they lost sight of what they were, who who they were as God's people, and and how they were supposed to influence society. How they were continue, supposed to continue to worship, in truth. They were led astray by the cultures that that came their way. There were false messages and messiahs, false voices that came in and changed the gods that they served and and who God was. And another challenge was giving up. Will it ever come? 400 years is a long time to wait. What did they need? What did they need in this time? They needed storytelling, faithful and accurate storytelling. You know, and, and I don't know if we've got that in our culture nowadays. You know, we've got our, um, our books that we read, kids, but um, storytelling is one of the strengths of the Middle Eastern culture. And if you ever go to uh, some of the African cultures and some of the Asian cultures, storytelling, history is one of the strengths of their culture. They needed faithful and accurate storytelling. Who is our king? What did God do? What, how has God dealt with us as his people? 
How has he been faithful? Listen to this story of when God rescued us from Egypt. Listen to this story of when God provided when we needed. They needed uh, consistent, faithful and accurate storytelling. No Chinese whispers. You know what Chinese whispers are like, don't you? You know how 400 years is a big risk of Chinese whispers, I tell you. You tell a story that many times over that many years, it's going to probably sound pretty different at the end. So they had to be pretty good at telling the story, didn't they? They needed to recognize false messages and messiahs. How do you know when the message is not real? You go back to the story. You go back to what you know. And they needed to know how to identify those, didn't they? They needed resilience and faith and trust that even though it's quiet, God is not inactive, that God is still on the throne in heaven. We're still his people. Those are the things that they needed in in those 400 years. This would lead them to fix their eyes on a promised peace that was to come. When they would see their new king and, and he would rescue them from the Romans, from turmoil, from injustice, from oppression. Life under the Romans was tough. It wasn't easy at all. We've talked about that sort of stuff before. We know um, how badly they suffered. This prince of peace, this new king, this promise, he would rescue us from all this injustice and oppression. And of course, they only recognized the oppression from the outside. You know, they, Their vision was the Romans are going to be toast when this king comes. But little did they know that the Messiah would rescue them from inner oppression as well. There was a way bigger plan. He wasn't just going to save them physically. He was going to save them from themselves. Then there would be peace. Then he would be the Prince of Peace. Now, why did I tell you all this? Did, did you need to know that? I could have just referred you to go home this week and read all the documents from the 400 years and, and um, I guarantee that maybe one or two of you would maybe do it. Do we need to know that? Is... Do we need to know what happened there? Is silence and their waiting so important for us? How do we see our world? How do we see the cultural influences in our world? In the Greek culture, totally. The Greek way of ruling was to totally change the minds and hearts of people. Show them a different set of values. Show them a different set of ethics. Point to a much more trendy and and better way to live. What seems like a little more friendly and a little more easy and a little bit more. Are you seeing any parallels with some of the cultures that creep into our world? Let's not be offensive. Let's let's you know let's let's. It's much more nicer to live with each other this way, isn't it? What are the rulers of the day? And as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We're also waiting for the coming of Jesus, aren't we? We also hold on to promises, the second coming. We look at our lives and, and we look at our world and, and we want peace. Who doesn't, you know, if, I don't think they do this anymore at beauty pageants, but what's the final question? What do you want, you know, world peace? Who doesn't want peace? Who doesn't open the papers in the morning and who doesn't wish that there was a whole lot more peace in the world? We want peace, right? What does peace look like in your life? Could you define it or in our world? Come on, call out. What does peace look like in our world or in your life? Hmm? No war. 
How many of you would like peace? So half of you would like peace. We're having a war after for the other half. Come on, what does peace look like in our world and our life? Come on, engage with me here. Families that stay together. Contentment. Not being afraid. Boy, we're excited about peace. That's what we want, but we want peace inside each one of us. If I sat down with you one-on-one and, and talked through your life, you could tell me, we would love to have peace. We want peace. But the times also change us, don't they? And challenge us in lots of ways. The society we live in, the world we live in. And we have many of the same challenges. I could go back over that list. Here's our challenges. We forget. We forget what God did. We forget that he came at Christmas. We forget that he came and he saved us. We forget that the whole world, we sang it as kids in Sunday school and we have the kids up there, but we forget that song. He's got the whole world in his hands because he still does, doesn't he? Right? We forget. We forget the things that God did. We forget the promises. We forget who God is. We get distracted. There are so many things in this beautiful new culture that are so much more attractive we get led astray. We, we're open to false messages and, and messiahs and, and this will save us and this is the best way to live. Oh, sure, that's what the Bible says and, and this is what Christians say, but ah, you know what? It seems so much more cultured to live with each other this way. And we give up too, don't we? Because it can be tough waiting for Jesus. It can be tough waiting sometimes when you're sick, when you're doing it tough and the family's breaking down. There's not enough money in the bank. You haven't got a job. It can be tough waiting, can't it? Waiting for Jesus. What do we need? We need many of the same things, don't we? We need faithful and accurate storytelling. Why should we do programs with our kids and youth and young adults? Why should we come and, and hear messages? Why should we get together in life groups? Why should we read the Word as much as we can every day? Because we need faithful and accurate storytelling we need to know the truth i need to be told the truth again and again because chinese whispers happens with me too even though i have the new testament we need to recognize false messiahs and false messages how do you recognize them we need to help each other we need to recognize trends that that steer us away Things that seem like that's a better way to live and it seems like it sort of fits in, but it doesn't really. We need to recognize lies in our culture and they're there. They seriously are there and I don't even see them and we buy into them so many times. We need to have resilience, faith and trust that even though it's quiet, God is not inactive. He still reigns. We, you know, God's people in Palestine, Judah, needed a Prince of Peace. We need a Prince of Peace, don't we? The story that we need to hold on is the one of the baby being born, the genesis of our coming peace. Not just outside peace, but inner peace. He would destroy the one who stole peace because he came to promise eternal peace. That's why 
Christmas is so much more than a calendar event. You know, sometimes, how many times have someone said to you, gee, Christmas just comes around faster and faster all the time? Have you ever said that yourself? Because it's a calendar event. You think either I'm getting older and years are going faster, or it just keeps coming around. It's just one of those events. And, you know, like, like Mick at the start, you know, we get, we get wrapped up in the event. There's so much to do. We've got to, it gets so busy. There's so many families do to, dues to get to. There's so many gifts to buy. There's so many things to do. But we need to remember at a time like this that Christmas is so much more than a calendar event. Christmas validates our waiting. Christmas validates our yearning. It's a faithful reminder of what's true in a world where truth is hard to fathom sometimes. I'm reading an old book again and I I think I was um, quoting it out of it um, a little while ago, it's uh, an old book by uh, J.I. Packer. It's called Knowing God. And I don't, some of you might have seen bits of that book. But he says this, when he speaks about the message of Christmas, he says this, and I thought this was lovely. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor, was born in a stable, so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It's the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will ever hear. It's amazing, those words. That's what waiting does. That's the answer to our waiting and yearning. It might have seemed a bit more like a history lesson today, more than an inspirational sermon, but I wanted you to see that God is never inactive. He's never not watching. He never gives up. His story doesn't change. His story doesn't get old and doesn't need to be changed. His silence is not a sign of his absence. And although we almost never look at the 400 years between the Testaments, there's clearly the hand of God in those years, changing his people, maturing them, teaching them to trust, to be faithful, and to remember that the world is his including everyone and everything in it. Rulers and cultures can come and go, but God and his word will transcend all of those. The Messiah would come at just the right time. You know, you wonder how that, you know, you wonder how God chose to come then. There's a scripture that Paul says in Galatians, I think I got it there. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. Was there something about the time that God said now? Of course there was. God is intentional. Is there something about the time that God has us waiting for? When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. Would they be ready and waiting? Will we? It's amazing how God uses history to work out his purposes. Even though... We're living in days now that might be termed silence from God. I mean, for almost 2,000 years, there's been no inspired voice from God. No one's added another book to the Bible. We can look back like they did in the Old Testament. We can look back at the promises to see that God has been and is speaking. God's purposes have not ended. Just as the world had come to a place of hopelessness back then, And they hung out for the one who will fulfill their hopes and bring peace. 
our world is also facing a time of despair and it's spreading. Hopelessness is growing and we need to remember and believe that God is moving to fulfill his words again with the coming again of his son to establish his kingdom. As we wait, that's what we wait for. Let these words, have a look at these words. Let these words linger in your heart as you wait. In the next couple of weeks, just, just maybe write these down or, or, or you know, read them out at your dinner table or something. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and he will be the Prince of Peace. That's what we wait for. It might be silent, but it's not inactive. You know, um, it's hard for us to get... I was thinking in the office this week, it's hard for us to get into that, that feeling. I, you know, I'm, I'm preparing this message and I'm thinking it's hard for us because we don't experience or feel the oppression like God's people did. You know, no one's coming in and changing the locks in your house and saying, I'm changing the rules in this house. You're going to live like this now. Or they're not, are they? We still have relative freedom. But so did they. What do we do with it? Metaphorically, people are changing the locks on our culture. Metaphorically, they are changing the rules of our household. They are changing the values of a life, a human life. It is happening. We need the Prince of Peace. We need those words, come Lord Jesus. Don't we? As we wait, hang on to those stories of faith. I'm going to celebrate Lord's Supper this morning and kind of... I go, can you go back to that slide with that quote? There's like three slides back to... Can we go backwards in our thing or do we know how to do that? Yep, that one there. I love these words because we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks. We're going to celebrate a little baby born in a manger and no one wants to think about the death of the, on a cross because it's too cute, right? We don't want to think about that. But I was reading another book and, and, and I was reading another chapter in this book and on the incarnation and why Christ come... And, and he suggested that's why the baby even was born in a manger. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor, was born in a stable, so that <coughs> it couldn't happen without being born in a stable. Salvation would never come without Jesus being born in a stable. He was born in a stable so that, just so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. That was the only reason that he was born. That for me, when you think about it, makes it even a greater celebration. Yeah, the baby's cute. It is. And nativity scenes are great. And in between, in those 30-odd years, there was lots of magnificent stuff that Jesus did that we can learn how to live life from, that we can learn how to... How to uh, how to live in the cultures that, that oppress us or the things that happen. There's a lot that we can learn. But the main purpose, the reason that Jesus was born in the manger was so that he could hang on the cross. So that he could take my place. 
and he could take your place. He could take my sin. He could take your sin on his shoulders. Deal with it so that I can look forward to eternity. The baby in the manger means that I can look forward to eternity. And you can. And that's what it's about. That's what we remember and believe. We remember that a baby came, but we remember that that baby grew up to be a man. And in the meantime, that man taught us many things. But the one thing he did, one thing he was destined to do, sent to do, was to die for us so that we could live forever with him in glory. That's good news. That's the ultimate prince of peace. That's not peace here anymore. That's eternal peace. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus knew that and he wanted to, that message to stick. He wanted that needed to be one of those faithful stories, accurate stories. And he says to his disciples, when you get together, do this and remember this for me. And, and he, he led by example and he picked up the bread and he said, and he'd given thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. They had no idea what that was going to look like yet. Do this in remembrance of me for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he took the, the cup and he poured out the cup and he did the same again. And as he poured out, he said, and, and this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. When you get together, remember to do this. And we carry on that tradition not because it's a tradition, not because it's another calendar event, just like Christmas, because it points to the Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace, it isn't, he isn't the Prince of Peace because he's kind of peaceful. He's the Prince of Peace because he orchestrates peace in our life and our eternity. That's what we remember and believe. Without the baby being born, without the cross, we don't get to do this. This is what leads us to us. So we're going to celebrate that this morning. I want to invite you, if, if you know this Prince of Peace, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and if you know that that baby was born, and in his destiny, in his mind was you, then you're welcome to join us this morning. I'm just going to invite our leaders forward and um, just come and take the elements, the bread and the wine, and, and take a seat again, and then we'll celebrate that together um, as we... Um, as we continue to worship. So take the bread, eat it, remember and believe that Jesus' body was broken for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. And as you take the cup, take it and remember and believe that his blood, Jesus' blood was poured out for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Towards the end of Malachi, a faithful few people, those who feared the Lord, spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord. And God said this, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. 
I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. There's a promise, they shall be mine. When I make up my treasure possession, I will spare them. You know, in Paul goes on later in many of his letters, and particularly in Romans, to talk about the fact that God's salvation came to us whilst we were undeserving. And that's always an encouragement to me. I fail, I fall into, I get distracted, I fall into the culture around me, I fall into the values and the norms of the culture around me. But Jesus still died for me. And he calls me time and time again to turn around and follow him. And the same for you.